everybody. Welcome to ThinkBox Radio, news, tips, and stories from America's coolest college makerspace. We're coming to you from Sears ThinkBox, the innovation center at the Case School of Engineering, the largest makerspace on an American college campus. Our goal is to share the magic that happens here and to inspire your own maker dreams. Okay, and we have with us today Prince Ghosh. He's a senior majoring in mechanical and aerospace engineering. In addition to that, he's also an entrepreneur, a CEO, and a leader in student government. Prince, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. So you started a company, Boundary Labs, which is developing wind technology. Tell us how it's going. Yeah, uh, things are going really well. Um, we, we launched very recently, uh, a couple of months ago, into a initial beta phase with um, one of our newest products, uh, but what we basically do is we develop low-cost, low-energy IoT sensors that pick up vibrational signals coming off of industrial gearboxes from machines like wind turbines or manufacturing machines. Uh, and what we actually do is analyze all those vibrational signals to monitor conditions and health of the actual industrial machines and take it a step further and go into the predictive analytics section. So actually being able to predict when a machine will fail before it actually does. Okay. So um, you've gotten pretty refined in this, but tell us how it started. Initially, there was a, there was a plasma barrier to reduce wind, wind drag. Could you explain that? And what brought you to this pivot into gearboxes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, People often think, you know, entrepreneurship is kind of a straight line and there's one right way to do it, but that's probably the furthest thing from the truth. There is really no well-beaten path in entrepreneurship. Um, you have to be, as a startup, really nimble, willing to adapt and willing to pivot based on your abilities to see what the market really needs. So for us, uh, the story of kind of my entrepreneurship journey um, started about a year and a half ago, I would say. So the summer after my uh, second year of college here at Case Western. Uh, I was working on some independent research over the summer, uh, pursuing and trying to recreate this advanced materials technology that I had read about in a couple of papers, actually. Um, these papers were authored by some Russian scientists back in, you know, the 1960s, hadn't really been touched since. NASA picked up some of the work in the early 2000s, and a couple of the folks over at the University of Notre Dame actually were doing a bit of work in this section, but no one had actually uh, created a full-scale prototype of this advanced material. So what we were initially trying to create in this sort of research project was um, something called a dielectric barrier discharge plasma actuator. Uh, essentially, yeah, it's quite a mouthful. Uh, essentially, what we were doing is creating this really thin, flexible um, adhesive strip-based electrode that could be applied right to the surface of uh, wing airplane wings and wind turbine blades, for example. And when activated, would actually create a thin layer of plasma surrounding the blade, um, which allowed it to almost move through the air a lot more fluidly, overall increasing uh, energy output or efficiency. Okay, because so, it's spinning faster. Because it's spinning faster, it's spinning, it's spinning easier, spinning longer, less resistance, therefore you know, generating more energy output or using less fuel um, or less energy input to move through the air. So that was, uh, that was a project that, you know, it was just kind of funny how, how these different things happen. Um, but I actually had an internship lined up that summer that ended up falling through very last minute because the funding for the project that I was going to be working on was cut 
uh, about a month before summer started. So this was the summer after my sophomore year of college. And I was kind of left with nothing to do. And uh, I had found these papers a while back, and they were just somewhere on my desktop. And I remember reading about this concept of, okay, you know, how can we make these things that I'm interested in, you know, in the energy sector and the aerospace sector more efficient, um, which would overall drive renewable energy costs down and would help shape the environment, which is, you know, something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, so I thought, okay, you know, nothing to lose. I, I don't have an internship lined up for the summer when I thought I would. Uh, so I decided to apply for a ThinkBox grant, uh, which was about a, I think this first one I got was something like a $2,500 grant from ThinkBox, uh, which is just non-dilutive funding that the university and ThinkBox as an innovation hub uh, offers to students who have interesting ideas or projects that they want to pursue. You just come and spend the summer there. Yeah, to, to just kind of, you know, come in, spend the summer um, at ThinkBox using all the facilities needed uh, and to basically subsidize the cost of getting started and getting your feet on the ground. And you told them about this idea? Yeah, so I told them about this idea. Uh, the Russian paper. I told them all about that. I submitted, you know, an, an abstract and everything that they needed. Um, awesome. was approved, very fortunately, uh, to get this initial grant. And that really helped me going off. That really helped me get off the ground. Um, and to start to create an actual prototype of this dielectric barrier discharge plasma actuator. Okay. So, spent the summer over my sophomore to junior year summer doing that. Um, had some mild success with it. I was able to create a functioning prototype by the end of the summer. And that's when me and one of my friends who I was working on it with at the time thought, you know, maybe let's see if there's opportunity for commercialization here. This is some really cool technology. And we kind of did some of that back of the napkin math and we said, you know, like, okay, if every wind turbine in America had one of these pieces of advanced material on them, uh, we could improve overall wind efficiency by about 4%. And, you know, that doesn't seem like much, but with the rate that wind energy was growing, uh, that's that's a lot. Four percent of increased efficiency in the wind energy sector. So is up quite up a lot. to this point, you're just you're just engineering. Yes, you're being a scientist. Yeah, absolutely. And you actually you did a prototype at, at Thinkbox. Yeah, absolutely. So we we used a lot of the facilities at Thinkbox, ranging from uh, the 3D printers to the ShopBot, which is an industrial sized CNC router uh, over there. Um, to, you know, a lot of the forming materials, the laser cutters, to basically put together this prototype of uh, a wind turbine blade um, with the material that we developed stuck on it. And uh, then we had to, you know, go and test it, right? Yeah, so, where'd you test that? So what we actually were able to do um, through some really kind folks over in the School of Engineering was uh, we were able to get some time in this old wind tunnel on the fourth floor of Glennon, which is uh, the mechanical and aerospace engineering okay. building on campus. A wind tunnel nobody knew was there. Yeah, a wind tunnel that no one knew was there. And to this day, if you ask people <laughs> you know, to tell you where the wind tunnel on campus is, you'll probably get a lot of blank looks because no one knows that this wind tunnel is uh, there. But it was this awesome, really kind of small-scale, one-foot-by-one-foot cross-sectional area wind tunnel that was perfect for our prototyping. Uh, nice. needs. So we went into that wind tunnel, kind of moved all the stuff out uh, that was in there, uh, moved all of our quote unquote lab setup in um, into that facility. And we basically took over that wind tunnel for the entire summer and ran all the tests that we needed for it. Uh, we had to we had to really kind of think on our feet to figure out um, ways to sort of optimize the tunnel for our needs. So for example, uh, a big part of what we needed to initially observe was to see how the airflow changed around the wing as a function of this advanced hmm. material. 
obviously you can't see air flowing, right? You know, air is invisible. You can't see it flowing. Um, and industrial scale wind tunnels that you would find at places like NASA or Lockheed Martin have uh, these smoke inducers that basically introduce smoke particles okay, into it. Sure. Um, we didn't have one of those. So what we ended up doing was taking a piece of nichrome wire, which is this really thin electrical wire, literally buying uh, this sort of animal fat oil off of Amazon and lathering the the wire, the electrical wire with this animal fat oil and then running a current through it to burn it off, which would give us this really thick smoke that allowed it to actually visualize uh, the airflow. I, I'm really surprised the fire alarm never went off. I think that was our biggest worry that summer that we were going to set the fire alarm off and someone was going to kick us out of the facility. Hey, you innovated. But yeah, I mean, you know, when when you're in kind of a place where you are cash strapped, uh, you're two undergraduate students with not much credibility trying yeah. to bring this thing that you've seen on paper to life. You just kind of have to work with what you have and what we had were Amazon Prime accounts. So that's kind of, you know, what we had to adapt with. And nice. uh, it ended up working. And like I said, we were able to create a successful prototype. And that's when we kind of got this thought of, you know, what's what's the viability in commercializing it? So how did that transition happen? You went from from being makers and engineers to say, hey, maybe there's a company here. Yeah. Um, so I, can't, I think a big part of it is, uh, I think a really big part of it depends on what you want as an individual or as an engineer in your life and what you kind of see your future to be. Uh, for me, I've always been fascinated with this prospect of taking things from, um, to adapt a quote from, venture capitalist Peter Thiel, zero to one, right? The the ability to take something from nothing, from an initial concept to an idea, to take it to one, the first steps of creation or formation and to, to actually gauge customer interest. So for me, uh, you know, this just kind of came as a natural next step. Okay, we've created something. Now, is there someone who's, who's willing to buy it? Uh, is there someone who's interested? Is this something that could actually be useful on the market? And how do you find that out? So that... Took up the large majority of my uh, of my first semester in junior at Case Western. Um, I spent the majority of that first summer of that first semester of my junior year. So after the summer had ended, uh, basically shopping around this concept and this prototype to uh, potential customers. Um, we we being the team that I kind of formed around me at that time uh, through an energy based fellowship that I was a part of through the School of Engineering and the Great Lakes Energy Institute called the Think Energy Fellowship. Uh, we were we applied and were accepted into a program from the National Science Foundation called the I-Corps program, okay. uh, which is basically a customer discovery and validation program. So nice. we drove down to um, we drove down to the I-Corps facility uh, down in Akron once every two weeks, and we basically went through a series of really intensive workshops over the course of eleven weeks of the semester of figuring out one is there a customer market at all to who is that customer market uh, and three is their viability for commercialization so it was over the course of that semester that um, through cold calls emails and reaching out through the case alumni network that we really started to shop around this this concept you know we have this really cool technology that can improve aerodynamic efficiency on wind turbines by about four percent is this something that you as a wind energy producer would be interested in or do you know someone who is who would be interested in it? Can you refer me to a higher up? And were they interested? Who did you find? So a lot of uh, who we actually got in contact with was through the Case Alumni Network. Um, I would spend hours at night going on LinkedIn, uh, looking up Case Western, and then you know some 
words associated with wind or energy or looking up different uh, companies in the Midwest region and, you know, across the U.S. Um, who are in the wind energy space and just sending cold LinkedIn emails uh, and invites to these folks who I kind of had some degree of connection with, at least through the Case Western name. Um, So that was really helpful. And I think that was kind of the first time that I really learned the value of a university community and uh, a university's name. Um, and, you know, got a lot of help from a bunch of different alumni who were, who were either to, who were either able to help me create those sort of market validations or connect me with the right folks who would be able to help make those market validations. Um, and so over the course of the semester, we made a lot of really close connections with, um, these major wind energy producers. But what we found by the end of the semester was, while wind energy companies are always looking for ways to improve overall energy efficiency, the risk factors associated with the product that we created were a little too high for their liking. Um, risk? What was the risk? So one of the biggest risks with, I guess the two biggest risks with what we were doing were uh, from I a mean, very... just making a blade spin faster, right? Yeah, I, I mean, so that's kind of the end output, right? But there's so many factors that go into the initial of what goes into the system. So for us, um, we needed a high voltage energy source to provide the actual energy to the material to be able to break down the air molecules and ionize them. Oh, it had to be kind of lit? All yeah, the time. exactly. So in a way, it was kind of lit all the time, and that required a really high voltage, and okay. that made a lot of the wind energy producers wear. Yeah, I could see that. Um, that and one of the byproducts, actually, from the chemical reaction was ozone production. Uh, so ozone, <laughs> small doses of ozone are good to... Um, you know, freshen air or something like that. And they're often used in places like bathrooms to freshen air. All right. Uh, large doses of ozone are not so good for the yeah, environment. Yeah, this is a green energy industry. and Exactly. So here you come with a flaming pinwheel. Okay. Exactly. So, you know, it was kind of one of those things where we really had to go back to the drawing board and look at the cost-benefit analysis. Is the cost not only greater than the... Than the uh, sorry, is the benefit not only greater than the cost, but... It wasn't enough to just be a little better than the cost. It had to be a lot better than the cost for these wind energy producers to adapt it. Um, So what we kind of found out by the end of the semester was that we, was that, you know, while this was an interesting product, there was a really long life cycle of R&D ahead of it um, that would be really, really expensive, really time consuming before this was anywhere ready to be even tested on uh, an actual turbine blade. Um, but that being said, what we had the ability to kind of develop over the course of the semester were some really close relationships, uh, with engineers and decision makers at these wind energy facilities. Uh, so we as a team kind of decided, okay, we, you know, we have a really competent team. We have some money in the bank that we had won through different pitch competitions that we had, uh, participated in over the course of the semester. And uh, we didn't kind of want this to be the end of this. And we felt really passionate about this, this industry and about creating a product. Um, so what we kind of did was we started back at square one. Uh, we went back to the folks that we had developed these connections with and we said, okay, aerodynamic efficiency, maybe not the biggest problem you have. What is a big problem you have? And we interviewed 
10, 20, 30 uh, energy producers. So now you had the contacts. Yeah, now we had the contacts, and we kind of... And now they, they knew you guys were serious players. They knew we were serious players. They knew we had strong technical abilities, and we kind of started where we probably should have started the first time around, uh, which is seeing if there is a customer market for this at all. Um, <laughs> well, and start with the fun stuff first. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so... Doing going through the, these paces of customer validation—that's not the exciting or sexy thing, you know. Right. That building out a product and creating a prototype and having news articles written about you—that's that's the fun stuff. But it's so so important when starting out in a, any sort of entrepreneurial journey to start out with seeing: is there someone who would buy this? Is there a customer mm. market for this? And if you can do that and start out with a customer market and then create a solution that caters mm-hmm. to that. Um, it just makes your life as an entrepreneur so much easier because. So you think you have a solution for them now? Yeah. So what what kind of emerged over the course of this secondary customer discovery period was um, one of the biggest problems that these energy producers over and over and over were having uh, was not necessarily aerodynamic improvements, but this issue with unscheduled and unplanned downtime in their wind turbines. Uh, and what we actually found out was one of the big one of the biggest issues, if not the overall biggest issue that caused these unscheduled and unplanned downtimes were gearbox failures in these wind turbines. Um, So, you know, wind turbines are really big pieces of industrial machinery that have these really complex and massive gearboxes. They're about the size of a car. Uh, And when one of these gearboxes breaks because of, you know, improper lubrication or or a chipped tooth or a misplaced bearing, it's really expensive uh, for a wind energy company to get that fixed. So what was quite literally said to us from a number of these wind energy producers was if there was some sort of like cheap and easy way to either constantly monitor the health of these gearboxes um, and even go the next step and predict when a gearbox would fail so that we could plan our maintenance cycles accordingly, that would by far be one of the biggest assets that could be introduced to not only Uh. us, but the industry as a whole. Thinkbox Radio is brought to you by the Case Alumni Association, which represents the engineering, science, and math graduates of Case Western Reserve University. We're the oldest independent alumni association of engineering and applied science graduates in America. Have you heard of us? If not, you've heard of our graduates. Case grads include Henry Dow, the founder of Dow Chemical, Frank Rudy, the inventor of Nike Airsole, Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail, and Jeanette Griselli-Brown, the first female director of corporate research at BP America. At Case, we're proud of our spirit of discovery and innovation, which is why we support ThinkBox, the world-class innovation center at the Case School of Engineering. So you've come up with a sensor that could do that. Yes. We'll tell them when they might have a problem coming. Exactly. Uh, so for the kind of last year or so, I had been a undergraduate researcher in the Energy and Control Systems Center here at Case Western Reserve, which is a lab focused on signal processing and control systems, particularly in, in the energy sector. Uh, that lab is directed by Dr. Mario Garcia Sanz, um, who is a PhD in uh, energy control systems and signal processing, who's actually on a two-year leave uh, part-time from Case Western because he was tapped by ARPAE, which is the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency, to, ha- to head a technical division there. Uh, so fun fact, he actually holds the highest non-political office in the land. Um, so nice. one office higher than his, you would need a Senate confirmation. So he has the highest technical position in the land, but he also 
has kept his lab um, and all of his researchers and PhD students and master students. And he comes back about once every two weeks to meet with all of us. But anyway, uh, so we kind of went back to the drawing board and uh, we met with our faculty advisor, Dr. Garcia Sanz, and we said, look, this is, this is a really big problem. We have some really good contacts in the industry who are willing to test some of this out. Um, what can we kind of do to solve this? And in a matter of about a week, uh, we had put together a prototype of basically using a really low-cost microcomputer and off-the-shelf sensors that picked up vibrational signals coming off of these gearboxes. So in a very similar way to how you or I, Bob, have a unique thumb fingerprint, mm -hmm. uh, any gearbox has a unique vibrational fingerprint. And what we were able to do was, with these off-the-shelf parts, actually map out the vibrational fingerprints of those gearboxes. Okay, and then see when there's abnormalities, when it's... Exactly. Going true to course. Exactly. So we kind of spent the next couple of weeks after that uh, seeing if we could put together a really quick software platform that basically found a baseline or a normal range okay. in which a gearbox of a wind turbine should operate within um, and basically set up a system that would automate a uh, operator or a plant manager or an energy producer overall. Um, if there were abnormalities from that, that could help them send up a technician up to the top of a turbine and see, hey, is there something going on? What's this rattling? What's okay. happening? Do we need to get a crane on the ground so that we can replace these gear? Or otherwise, it's humming along fine. Don't worry. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, things are perfect. Things are fine. Your energy is operating. Uh, you, you know, your wind turbines are operating as they should This be. sounds like interesting technology. It sounds like technology some others might be interested in. Uh, do you have any patents? Yeah, so we've been working closely with IPVC to see what we can kind of patent um, across the entire process. Uh, what we have found is there's, you know, while there's value in the infrastructure that we've set up in the sensors and the sensors that we've developed, uh, the actual true value lies in the data that we've been collecting. Um, what we've kind of inadvertently been doing is creating one of the most robust and structured data sets of vibrations on industrial gearboxes, which is something that's not available. So for us, it, you know, in today's day and age, data is everything, right? There's that, there's that term thrown out that data is the new oil. But, yes. you know, what does that really mean? It's the value of being able to have structured and accessible data that you can then make insights and drive, derive analytics off of that's so valuable. So we're really structuring our protection around this unique data set that we're creating um, in the process. So Interesting. And who helps you uh, figure out this? what you need to have protected? We have a, a venture clinic here on campus? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we engage really closely with the Intellectual Property Venture Clinic um, on Case Western's campus, which is basically a pro bono law clinic uh, that helps student, uh, faculty, and alumni startups with anything and everything they need from a legal standpoint. Hmm. Um, for, a lot of, for a lot of startups, uh, legal decisions are one of the hardest decisions to make and one of I'll the bet. biggest things that hold back a lot of startups from sure. proceeding because they can't engage with venture capitalists or angel investors or uh, large corporations to develop partnerships with until they have some of those legal things figured out. Um, but they oftentimes can't figure out those legal things because it costs so much money to hire a corporate or IP lawyer. Um, for us, the IPVC, I, I've said this you know, to a bunch of people, but I think it is one of the biggest hidden gems on Case Western's campus. Uh, the IPVC is such a 
IP Venture Clinic. The, the Intellectual Property Venture Clinic, or IPVC. Yeah, I don't think a lot of students know about it. No, I, no. I don't I, think a lot of alumni know about I, it. Exactly. And, you know, I, I really hope that there's a way to get the word out about that. You know? I think that's something. The School of Law created that, right? Exactly. So the School of Law, through an endowment um, a couple of years ago, created this Intellectual Property Venture Clinic that basically assigns uh, a faculty director of the Venture Clinic. So in the past, it was Professor Ted Theophrastus, and I believe now it's Professor Zara Smith along with a third-year uh, intellectual property law law student, basically. So in their third year of law school, um, law students, they go through rotation. Some go to corporate law firms and some go through um, public, you know, uh, public prosecutor and defending uh, firms and things like that. Um, and those students who are interested in, in, in intellectual property law, they come to the IPVC as part of the rotation. So That is a great resource, Prince, especially on a campus with so many engineers, so many innovators. Absolutely. Now, I got to think you are going to be an entrepreneur anyways. <laughs> um, tell us about your family. What was it like growing up? I'm wondering what, what put the engineer, what put the maker in you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I... I, I f- feel very fortunate to have come from the background and to have been raised amongst the family that I was raised in. Uh, My dad is an engineer by profession. My mom is a teacher, uh, a science teacher. Um, But throughout my entire life, they have always pushed me to think beyond what is just given or what is within the box and to really push the boundaries of science and math and technology to try and find a better or a more efficient or a different way of doing things. Um, I've, I've always credited my parents to be the source of any degree of success I've had in my life. Uh, my dad, he's um, a software executive at a software services firm. And my mom, like I said, she's a science teacher. Now. She teaches chemistry, biology, um, and a couple of other subjects. But they, they, from the very beginning, from my early stages of childhood, have really instilled this scientific mindset within me. Um, this process of questioning, you know, things around you, of not just adhering to the norms. Uh, I've, you know, I've always said my mom has been my first teacher, and my dad has always been my first business coach. And it, it's true, it's true to this very day. Uh, I rely on them for, you know, anything and everything, both in my personal life and in my entrepreneurial ventures. Um, as a source of advice and support and as people who also kind of like me really do have that entrepreneurial bug. Yeah. So you had that. Yeah, and, and I'm guessing these parents, uh, I'm guessing your parents, when you told them you had an engineering idea you thought could be a company, they're like, great. And then when you said, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to try something else. They were like, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they both get it. They, they both realize that, you know, starting a company and developing a product is not a straight line. You need to be, like I said, nimble. You need to be willing to adapt. Um, and you need to be willing to shift as a function of market forces and what today's need is. Uh, you know, I, I always joke with people, I think my first stab at entrepreneurship was um, at a science fair that my parents forced me into. I think I was in kindergarten or the first grade. Um, and I remember it was kind of the night before and me and my mom, we stayed up uh, all night developing this idea that I had. Uh, we called it, I can't even remember what we called it, but basically what I developed for the science fair in, the, in kindergarten was the shoe that had a little sound sensor in it. 
Um, and when you put the wrong foot into the wrong shoe, it would give <laughs> off the sound and beat. So I always <laughs> joke that that's my first stab at entrepreneurship. Funnily enough, I actually won that science fair. In, <laughs> you know, it was like an invention convention or something like that in kindergarten back when my family lived in Nashville, Tennessee. That's a great um, idea. And, you know, I have this picture of me holding the shoe and of me, you know, winning. I think it was like 20 bucks for a first place <laughs> thing. But, you know, as a six-year-old, I was overjoyed to sure. see this really cool concept of, you know, something I had in my head come to life. And, you know, I can never thank my mom enough for... Um, pushing me to compete in that invention convention because I think that that was the time in my life that really gave me this sort of entrepreneurial bug. Oh, that's great. And we should add that uh, Prince has since won several more startup competitions, and um, including um, several that uh, more to come. He seemed to get one, an invitation <laughs> one right after the other. Yeah. But uh, So good luck to you, you and good much. luck to Boundary Labs. And we'd like to end each show with a maker tip. Prince, sure. and you know ThinkBox as well as anybody, and the various machines you've used in there, have you come up with maybe a handy tip that you could share with our listeners that they could do themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite machines to use in ThinkBox uh, are the 3D printers, and I think they just updated them. So now there used to be four, and now there's eight 3D printers, which is awesome because you can just run jobs all the time. Uh, but it was, I think, you know, throwing this back three years ago, it was my, it was my freshman year of college. Uh, and one of my friends, she broke her glasses. One of, one of the pieces of her glasses came off and broke. And she was going to go back to like Warby Parker or wherever and get her glasses fixed. But she would have to drive 45 minutes off campus. So I remember uh, another friend, um, he ended up uh, taking the glasses, designing one of these spare pieces on SolidWorks on the ThinkBox computers, submitting a print job on one of the industrial scale printers for this like tiny, tiny piece. It was like two millimeters by one millimeter. Um, and it ended up taking glasses, taking off the old broken piece, hot gluing on the new piece, putting in the screws uh, and fixing it all up. And it worked perfectly fine until she had the chance to go home and get new glasses. But you know, excellent. It's just one of those 3D printers are one of those awesome things that really empower anyone to take um, this concept <laughs> or idea they have yeah. in their head and bring it to life. Excellent. Even fixing your glasses. Exactly. Something as simple as fixing your glasses. Great tip. All right. You've been listening to ThinkBox Radio. I'm Robert Smith, your host. Our producer is Alex Zinni. And remember, if you can't fake it, make it. <laughs>